wish to go down for children's church, May, unless you're my age. <laughs> All right. Should be an outline there on the other side of your scripture reading. Be in Second Peter this morning. Second Peter chapter 2. Appreciate my wife typing out that outline for me. 2 Peter 2, 13 to 16. One of the best evidences of a truly godly person is a quiet, humble, holy walk with God. When I say whole, you understand we're never going to attain full holiness or perfection in this life. We're always going to struggle with that sin nature. But I think you know what I mean. So one of the best, one of the surest signs that somebody is godly is a lifestyle that just reflects a relationship with God, saying no to sin and walking with Christ. Um, there are many today in Christianity who would portray themselves as godly, yet their personal life uh, says no. Ran across this story in a book. It says, in 1983, Neville Johnson, a prominent Assemblies of God pastor in New Zealand, resigned due to immoral conduct. Taking his charismatic theology to a delusional degree, Johnson claimed that he'd received special revelation from God, indicating his wife would soon die and he would be free to remarry. As a result, Johnson asserted, He'd been granted special grace allowing him to participate in extramarital affairs. We say, what? Okay. And we say, is that man really a believer? Or what's going on? I think this type of conduct indicates that somebody may be a false teacher as described in 2 Peter chapter 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 16, a verse I will read for you, says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So Second Peter is warning of and describing false teachers. Verses 10 through 19 talk about three characteristics of false teachers, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at their, their speech. 10 through 12 tells their proud, boastful speakers. Verses 13 through 16 speak of their wicked lifestyles. That's my text for today. Verses 17 through 20 speak of their empty promises. And so we can identify false teachers by their wicked lifestyles. Three identifying marks. First of all, we, we notice the defilement which they cause. Verse 13, 2 Peter 2. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots, they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Now, this section of 2 Peter, of course, needs to be understood together as, as a unit, but uh, 
because I expound these things too slowly, we're not going to get through it all today, so we just want to kind of notice the continuity. Go back to verse 12. Again, speaking of false teachers, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things that they understand not and shall utterly perish their own corruption, and there's a semicolon, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. And so there's the, there's the period there after, after daytime. And so this is very much connected to, to verse 12. And so we first see that defilement will be punished. In the middle of this verse, Peter calls false teachers spots and blemishes. Talk more about them later, but just for now, now spots and blemishes defile things. False teachers defile things. They're like the old saying, one bad apple spoils the bunch, okay? And because of this, uh, they will receive the reward of unrighteousness, the Bible says there. Shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. The word for reward is dues paid for work, wages. You work a job, you get a paycheck, okay? That's a good thing. Uh, You should get a paycheck from your job. All right, so what are the wages of unrighteousness? Maybe you're thinking of Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, all right? And it's not just physical death. We're all going to experience that unless we're raptured first. But I think this description is that of the false teacher's and Peter describes, as Peter describes it, I think they, they must be unbelievers. They're, they're not saved. And these unbelievers' ultimate destination then is the lake of fire. There. These uh, shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, right? Now, sometimes there's punishment in this life as well. I ran across another story. In 1986, the ministry of faith healer Peter Popoff was debunked on national television. Stage magicians and paranormal investigator James Randi discovered that the self-proclaimed prophet was using a nearly invisible wireless earpiece to obtain revelatory information about people in the audience. Popoff's wife mingled throughout the audience and casually talked with various participants. Then using a portable radio transmitter, she would tell her husband, who was wearing a miniature headphone, what to say. Popoff would then announce to thousands of thrilled worshipers the specific name, illness, and address of an actual participant. Randi used a digital scanner to capture Popoff's wife's secret communications with her husband. Then he exposed the fraud on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Within a year, Popoff had filed for bankruptcy. There, he experienced some judgment here in this life. And so, don't be enamored, don't be jealous of these false teachers. Remember that punishment is coming. Uh, defilement will, is boldly practiced. And so, in the rest of this verse, the Holy Spirit brings out the truth that these false teachers become bold in their wickedness. Their defilement is boldly practiced. It says they're in the daylight. Uh, they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. They count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Most of us 
have to work in the daytime. Sometimes when somebody sings a song and others don't think they did it particularly well, they'll say, don't quit your day job, right? Most of us have to work in the daytime. Now, sometimes you do need to do a night shift and there's a legitimate place for that. You know, if you wake up with a, a terrible pain, you go to the emergency room, you're thankful that there's some people working the night shift when, when you get there, all right? But generally, sinners prefer to have the cover of darkness to hide in while they commit their sin. Bars and taverns are usually dimly lit. I remember delivering for UPS back in the day, and sometimes would have to deliver you know, to a bar, a tavern, and you go out from the bright daylight and you walk in there and say, whoa, you can hardly see where you're going there in the place. And why is that? Well, I happen to think it kind of fits what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Their false teachers become bold, and they'll even do what they do in daylight hours. But they are as obvious as spots and blemishes. Uh, spots, there means to defile, to spot. The same word is used in Ephesians 5. 27, we sang the song this morning, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Comes from Ephesians 5, 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We understand no church is perfect. There's an old saying, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there, you'll ruin it. Okay, it's true for me too. I'd ruin it too. We have a bunch of imperfect people pastored by an imperfect pastor. It's a wonder God can get anything done, okay? The only hope is that we are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and doing our best to live for him. And yes, we understand that we sin, and when we sin, we need to confess it before God and, and deal with it. We need to be you know, a loving, forgiving bunch here and when we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, when we stand before him, we will be without spot or wrinkle. Why? Because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And all those sins have been taken care of, praise God, right? But these false teachers haven't been saved, the text indicates. And so they still have their spots. They still have their blemish. The word for blemish there is a disgrace, Sad thing is they're deceived. They don't see the spots. Imagine on a, particularly, a particular Sunday morning, you're getting dressed for church. I've learned I don't put my dress clothes on until after breakfast. Okay. <laughs> but at breakfast, there you are. You're having breakfast, and you're eating your egg, and your yolk is a little bit runny, and it drips on your shirt which I think is a good argument that all yolks, all eggs should be cooked until they're hard. Maybe that's just my preference, all right? Anyway, and drips on your shirt, you don't see it. You get to church, you go, ooh, what's that on my shirt? And so you go in the bathroom, you try to get rid of it there, you know, a little water and a little towel and try to, try to get rid of it. You're embarrassed about it, you try to clean it up. 
It seems here that these false teachers don't see the blemish and they're, they're strutting their stuff. But God sees them just like they got a big yellow blot of runny egg on their shirt. Okay. They're, blot, they're blots, they're spots and blemishes. Their defilement is boldly practiced there. Uh, spots are they in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And the picture here is of false teachers sitting down at the dinner table. Uh, historians tell us in 2 Corinthians 11 indicates that the early church used to do something called a love feast. I think the closest equivalent for us today is a church meal called by a lot of different things. Sometimes they call them potluck. Sometimes they're called kettle blessings. We just call them church meals, I think. I think they're wonderful, okay? We, we get together, you bring in... Whatever you bring, your kettle of food, your bread, your dessert, whatever. And we all bring in our stuff. We all set it on the table. We pray. And you get to go through. You can pick whatever you want. I just loved them as a kid. Still love them, right? It's a great thing. We just share. People who didn't bring anything, come on. We don't care. Help yourself. All right? The old love feast, as it was sometimes done, was, was different, the rich would bring caviar. The poor would bring maybe ramen noodles or peanut butter sandwiches. And so I'm sure there must have been exceptions. I'm sure there must have been good, godly, rich people, praise God for them, who, who shared. But some of them didn't. It seems these false teachers were, were those who, who didn't. And they enjoyed their caviar and, and didn't share anything. I don't know if I'd enjoy caviar or not, but, uh, you know, the, the fine food, whatever, all right? In, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, when you come together, verse 20, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper, for in eating every one taketh before another his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in, or despise the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? I praise you not. You know, some people had plenty and they ate plenty. Others went hungry. And so these false teachers seemed to be involved in that and they were eating plenty and maybe bragging about their, their lifestyle while the poor didn't have much. They're at the dinner table. They're spouting off their, their wicked deeds. But God wasn't pleased and God wasn't deceived. And that's not how it should be. And so we can identify false teachers by their wicked lifestyles, first by the defilement which they cause, and then by the wickedness which they practice. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and hearts have they exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Strong verse. Okay, five descriptions of the wickedness of false teachers. First of all, adulterous eyes. The word for adultery uh, is in the feminine sense, and it uh, refers to an adulteress. Dr. A.T. Robertson, a great Greek scholar of years ago, he quotes another person. He says, it's a vivid picture of a man who cannot see a woman 
without lascivious thoughts toward her. Lascivious simply means intense lust. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so these false teachers are are full of that. I found an interesting illustration for this in a book by Paul Tripp, Dangerous Calling. He is writing here of a seminary class that he taught on counseling. And as he counseled, or as he taught counseling, he found that some of his students needed some of it. One of his students was named George. He said, George didn't find it hard to talk to me because he was no longer able to trust himself and he was scared. He'd begun to study at Barnes & Noble at night after dinner with his wife. He found it gave him a break from the hothouse of seminary while providing a quiet place to study. It wasn't long before he began to notice all the beautiful young women who also chose Barnes & Noble as their evening hangout. One night he sighted a beautiful young lady and actually moved in order to position himself to have a, more, to have a better, more strategic look at her. Sometimes he would sit so that he would have eye contact with one of the ladies, or he would sit so he could have a view of them that he wanted without their feeling his stare. Some months in, he saw the woman he was watching get up and leave, so he did the same, perhaps hoping they would bump into one another. She got into her car without noticing him, and he went back to his study. This led to not merely leaving when a woman left, but getting in his car and following her at a distance to her home. He asked me to see... He asked to see me the night after he followed a woman all the way home, got out of his car, walked up to her door, and just before he knocked, he got scared and ran to his car and drove away. In class, he seemed to be a sweet and pliable seminary student. The contrast between day and night, the day and night of his life, was stunning. Remember the old Sunday school song, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And so we need to guard our eyes. Understand porn is a huge issue today. And, you know, Christians can struggle with that. And just because you have struggles with some of these things doesn't mean you're a false teacher. These false teachers made no effort to guard their eyes. And just looking at the tenor of the text, I think they would have been defensive about it. Said, there's nothing wrong with this. Whereas a Christian who struggles is going to say, you know, I struggle with this. I know it's not right. God help me to get the victory. And there's the difference. And you know, if you truly struggle with those, those things, let me know, and I'd be happy to try to help you with that. So we see there's adulterous eyes, there's ceaseless sin, verse 14, and cannot cease from sin. These are people who indulge in sin and are defensive about it. A true believer, when they sin, will at least after a while get to the place where they say, yeah, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done it. God, will you forgive me? And the good news is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, praise God. He does that. But that's not the characteristic of these false teachers. We all struggle with sin. These false teachers don't struggle. They just indulge. Um, and so this is a description of an unbeliever posing as a godly Christian. Many unbelievers, sometimes even believers, can have a distorted view of the grace of God. They think 
that God's grace is basically a sinning license. Jude, verse 4, says, There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness or an excuse to indulge in sin and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I enjoy hunting and fishing, as most of you know, and you can buy a license, buy a deer license. And this license allows you to uh, take a certain number of deer in a certain area in agreement with, with the law, okay? Fishing license allows you to take a certain number of fish uh, in agreement with the law. False teachers look at God's grace and they say, oh, this is a license for sin. God has promised to forgive me and cleanse me of all of my sin, so therefore I can go out and indulge. After all, it says in Romans where sin did abound, grace did that much more abound. So if I sin more, I'm just making grace abound more. Of course, Paul answers that argument in Romans says, God forbid, let it not be. Okay, And so often he's False teachers, if somebody would challenge them about some of these things, oh, you're just one of those legalists. They don't understand the grace of God. Titus chapter 2, a good verse about the grace of God. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Read these verses. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Praise God for his grace. I need it just as much as anybody else. What does grace teach us? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We understand we're never going to be perfect in this life. We're going to struggle with sin, but a true believer is going to at least struggle. These false teachers don't struggle. They just indulge. So somebody who can persist shamelessly, defensively in sin I don't think has been transformed by the grace of God. We need to beware of them. Ceaseless sin. Seductive influence back in 2 Peter 2, 14. Beguiling unstable souls. The word beguiling means to lure by the use of bait to entice. The fisherman puts his bait on the hook and he dangles it around and he hopes that fish looks at that and says, well, I'm hungry and he takes it. Uh, false teachers will use sin, and they'll put it on a bait, and they'll dangle it in front of unstable souls. I think unstable souls here refers to perhaps a, a new believer or an immature believer who hasn't walked with Christ very long, and this false teacher says, yeah, you're saved, and all that, that's great. You know, some of the things the church says about sin here, they kind of go a little over the top with some of these things. You can actually enjoy some of these things, and it's okay. It's not that big a deal, okay? That's their idea. Beware, beware. They downplay biblical Christian living and encourage immorality. John Phillips writes this. Take, for instance, the stance taken by Bishop John Shelby Spong, I don't expect you to remember the name, of the American Episcopal Church. He has no use for conservative Protestants who take a literal view of biblical interpretation. Although he admits that 
He himself once held such views and that fundamentalism gave him a love for scripture. He's written a number of books of ill repute. His book, Sexuality, a Divine Gift, challenged sexual abstinence or strict heterosexual monogamy. His book, Living in Sin, claimed that traditional morality is the product of patriarchal bias. According to him, sex outside of marriage can be holy and life-giving, and I'll stop there because it gets worse, or you get the idea. Here he is, a man who claims to be a Christian, preacher in a church, saying, go ahead, indulge. Ceaseless sin, seductive influence. How many people have been led astray by this kind of nonsense, all right? It's sad. A coveting heart. A heart have they exercised with covetous practices. The word exercise, there's the Greek word gumnazo. We get our word gymnasium from there. Gymnasiums are often used as a place to exercise vigorously. The idea here is is that these false teachers uh, exercise vigorously their heart with covetous practice. Covetous, as you know, is a greedy desire for more. Greedy desire for more what? Well, more money. This can be one thing that's desired. The next verse... In our text, verses 15 and 16 actually, refers to Balaam, Old Testament prophet, prophet for hire, not a godly man. And he tried to curse God's people for money. Today, the stories of televangelists living in luxury are plenty, all right? Money. Sometimes there's a greed for sin. Once a person starts down the road of sin, more and more sin is required to satisfy. Ask somebody who's been involved in drug addiction or alcohol or a lot of other things. This is a story about a young man in the community in which I grew up. No names will be given. Um, Young man grew up. His parents had money. He enjoyed the things money could buy. And he liked to try things for, for new thrills. And the new thrill would be fun for a while, but then it would kind of dim, it would kind of wear down a little bit. And so he got involved in all kinds of things, just for the fun and for the thrill. Became involved in homosexuality, contracted AIDS, and he died way too young. Okay? Sometimes false teachers will do the same thing, coveting heart, just never satisfied, seeking the next thrill, Accursed destination, the end of verse 14. Cursed children. The term cursed children was a Hebrew expression. It meant children of the curse. Now, all of us are born under the curse of sin, but praise God when we understand that we're sinners, we put our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross to to save us from our sins. We trust in his salvation we're delivered from that. We're no longer cursed children. We're adopted. We're, we're children of God at that point in time. But these false teachers never were truly saved. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, even denying the Lord that bought them. They're denying the Lord. And so because they never were saved, they are headed for the lake of fire. Folks, we cannot arrive at the right destination by traveling in the wrong 
direction, okay? We got on a plane from Fargo and traveled to Las Vegas to go to uh, Emily and Jacobs, all right? Now, um, you know, I, after the airplane makes a few spins, I'm not sure what direction we're going. I trust that the pilot knows where he's going, all right? And he did get us to Las Vegas, and thankfully Jacob was there, and he picked us up, and we made it, to, made it to Emily's, all right? But if that pilot had gone in the opposite direction, he wouldn't have gotten to Las Vegas, right? And so in our lives, if we pursue sin, and that's our pursuit, and there's no interest in Christ, you know, we're not going to get to the right destination. These false teachers are going to end up in the wrong place because they live in sin and they deny Christ. So we can identify false teachers by their wicked lifestyles. We see the defilement which they cause. We see the wickedness which they practice. And then thirdly, by the path which they follow, verses 15 and 16, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass or dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. I love it when the Bible provides its own illustrations. And so these verses are here to illustrate what's been taught about false teachers. First of all, they reject the right way. They have forsaken. The word forsaken means to leave behind. Some of these false teachers maybe made a profession of faith at one point in time, but they left true Christianity, left in their heart. Their body might still be in a church. And they reject the narrow way. In Matthew chapter 7, Lord Jesus Christ, the Sermon of the Mount, as he's Summing it up, this is verse 13. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broads the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight or narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. And so these false teachers say, you know what, that narrow way, that's too restrictive. You can go ahead. You can take the Broadway. It'll be fine. It'll get there. All roads lead to God. It's okay. But that's not true. They reject the right way. They follow the wrong way. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto God but through Christ, right? Only one way to God. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers reject Christ. Like Balaam, they love being paid for sin. Numbers chapters 22 through 25, and again chapter 31, tell us the story of Balaam, because that's a long passage. I'm just going to summarize it and read a few verses. Numbers 22, Balaam was basically what I call a prophet for hire. As the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, the king of Moab named Balak, Balak and Balaam are easy to confuse. I keep them separate by thinking Balak has a K on the end. He was the king of Moab. That's how I keep them straight. Anyway, Balak was worried 
Balak, king of Moab, both the Israelites traveling through. He thought they were a threat to him. Truth is, if he had behaved himself, they wouldn't have been a threat at all. But he thought they were a threat, and he wanted to deal with them. And he thought if he could have somebody curse them, they might be easier to defeat. And so he heard about this Balaam, a prophet for hire. And so he sent some messengers over to Balaam, offering him money and position if he would come and curse Israel for him. Well, God instructed Balaam to refuse to do it, so Balaam did. Balak then tried again. He sent more honorable princes and more promises, probably money. Balaam then went with him, went with the messengers. On the way there, Balak, uh, on the way to Balak, Balaam had a little donkey trouble. I'm going to read Numbers 22, 22 through 35. And God's anger was kindled because he went, because he was going to Balak. The angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he's riding upon his donkey and his two servants were with him. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the donkey or hit the donkey to turn him out of the way. He's thinking, donkey, what are you doing? You're going the wrong way. That's not where I told you to go. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there is no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the donkey with his staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Now this would have been a time to be alive and to see and hear this. Wow. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to thee that thou hast smitten unto me these three times? You say, what's more crazy than a talking donkey? Somebody who talks back to the donkey, right? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there was sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. Man had an anger problem. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not thy donkey, which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine to this day? Was I ever want or known to do so unto thee? In other words, have I ever been this way before? Imagine a donkey using this kind of logic with you. And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. The angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore, why have, hast thou smitten thine donkey these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. God is trying to instill in Balaam before he goes there a holy, reverent fear for God. He's trying to say, Balaam, you watch it. You be really, really careful and remember that I am real and that I'm watching and I'm listening. Well, Balaam went on the way to Balak. He tried to curse Israel, but God controlled his mouth so that instead, uh, Balaam 
blessed Israel. Now, naturally, Balak, the king, isn't happy. Numbers 24, 10, and the Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them these three times, because God took control of Balaam's mouth, and he blessed the donkey. Um, and it seems like a good thing, and if the story had ended there, it would have been okay. But Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, tells us of immorality that took place between Israel and Moab. And then Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, after God had Moses uh, attack the uh, Moabites, the Midianites, it says there, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord through the counsel of Balaam. Apparently Balaam, after he saw that he couldn't curse Israel, he said to Balaam, okay, I've got an idea. God won't let me curse him. Here's what you should do. Get your women involved here. Get them to commit some immorality with the children of Israel and God will destroy him for you. Okay, uh, right out of the devil's mouth, really. But Balaam died for what he did. And so, like Balaam, false teachers love being paid for sin. And like Balaam, they will be rebuked. Balaam was rebuked by his donkey. It's still just amazing to think about, about that happening. But someday... False teachers will be rebuked by God, and so we need to be careful not to follow their path. We can identify false teachers by their wicked lifestyles. We've noticed the defilement which they cause. As I notice, one rotten apple will spoil the bushel unless the rotten apple is tossed out in time. That's why it's important for a church to have a doctrinal statement and for members to agree with that. And I, when I say this, I need to be careful. We're, we're not supposed to be looking at each other suspiciously, okay? We don't want that. But false teachers will cause defilement. They'll also be known by the wickedness which they practice. We notice five descriptions, five different kinds of wickedness. And again, this is not an occasional sin. This is a life that's marked by sin. And then by the path which they follow. One thing which I've learned in life is that time reveals things. Various times in my life I've met people and they just cause some mental red flags in my mind. What's going on here? And time goes by, months go by, and years go by, and you hear of something that happens. You say, oh, that's what was going on in that person's life. That's why I got a funny feeling about them. A couple of applications this morning as we close. First of all, don't be hoodwinked by false teachers. We need to be discerning. Again, don't go around eyeing everybody suspiciously. But when the Holy Spirit says something to you, you sense something that something isn't quite right, just be, be aware. Pay attention. And then we need to make sure that we ourselves know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we have personally Put our faith in trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as, as our Savior. Ask yourself, has there been a time in my life when I recognized that I was a sinner? 
that I could not save myself, that there's a penalty for sin. And I've called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save me and to forgive me of my sins. And I put my full trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for my sin. And if you've never done that, I urge you to do that today. The Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 13 says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done that, I urge you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, hard passage, uh, yet we understand and we're perceptive. We have even seen and heard of false teachers and certainly hear of it on the news occasionally. Father, help us to be wise and discerning. Help us to personally keep our walk with you as it should be, to guard our hearts, to love you. Father, if someone here has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would reveal to them that need and draw them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.